AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So Mike, we saw some ridiculous DDoS attacks over the weekend, uh, and it's actually a, a relatively new attack vector. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, I, I think um, our um, colleagues on an, an earlier Threat Track episode talked about some traffic uh, during internet weather, uh, memcache servers, lots of traffic, right? And I think what, what happened is we've entered into a new era in DDoS. Uh, I remember the beginning when a couple gigabits per second was a DDoS attack and you got excited and we had scrubbers and we scrubbed them out, but we are now in terabits per second of DDoS attacks. The amplification factor on this is way off the charts, larger than anything else, which means attackers could send a small amount of data, get a large response, and then direct that towards their targets. The other thing to think about is all the old ways of DDoS attacking did not go away. We're just putting a new way on top using memcache servers that are internet connected, um, think of them as being very fast. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, memory, right? right. And the whole goal of these servers is to deliver content very quickly. So great uh, thing to misuse, to mm -hmm. generate a lot of traffic and to target someone. Memcache servers that are in a poorly configured state, they have a, a port, the UGP port. Unfortunately, that port allows uh, any unsolicited packet to come through and request a large chunk of information, which unfortunately could be used in a reflective DDoS attack. It doesn't require all the work that some of the older attacks did, where you had to compromise a whole bunch of machines all over the place. You find these uh, poorly protected default configuration servers, and they're yours to use mm -hmm. to carry out these very large scales. These are reflective denial of service attacks in a UDP protocol, so yeah. Exactly, UDP Same protocol. Same story, but bigger amplification is what I hear. Bigger, yeah, 50 to a couple hundred times. So we've seen kind of this, um, the discovery of new ways to amplify, right? Mm -hmm. And DNS was really big for a while. And then somebody wrote a paper on TFTP servers have bigger amplification. Then we saw actually use of TFTP servers, mm -hmm. network time servers, and this is now the, probably better than all of those that were discovered along the path. Memcache servers, wow, has kind of been the, mm -hmm. the reaction on both sides, protecting against them and people wanting to use them to amplify very large attacks. Um, our own uh, analysts seeing traffic, you know, taking advantage of that port, it's one, one, two, one, one, yep. like noticed it and they actually kind of predicted and said, hey, everybody watch out, there's something going on here. And then we've seen that exact thing happen. So they were very upfront. They knew more was to come and more has come. Mm -hmm. And as we look forward from today, we can expect see bigger more, attacks, yeah. past one terabit and then one point five, one, you know, two terabit, we know that's gonna be the case. And the limiting factor is just the number of available memcached D servers that are on the internet and the pipes to them? If they're configured with, you know, the ability to be kind of wide open UDP traffic to take your pick target address. All right. The biggest uh, challenge here is for people who actually run these memcache servers to do a better job protecting them. US CERT actually has an advisory where they list out all the different protocols you can do um, reflection against, and they have the amplification factor in there. It's something to check out. It's like a, it's almost like a guide to the amplification factor I was thinking about protocol. that. That's the kind of information that could be used in two different ways. Yes. This is your checklist to make sure you don't have it on the internet, and this is your checklist for scanning, and they happen to be the same document. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Well, I think it's important for us, the good guys, to kind of know and be able to understand 
like what are all of the things that should be protected. So that's the lesson out of this is if you're an admin and you happen to have a server running memcached, make sure it's not internet facing? Yes, and make sure it's configured correctly if it is internet facing. In general, I think the best defense against this is to educate people who are admins. You know, if you're running one of these servers, make sure it's not on the internet. And if it is, if there's a way to lock it down, do that. So if you're running any kind of memcache server out there and you notice maybe it's been running a little bit slowly, it might be because it's been participating in a DDoS attack. And the best thing you can do to help everybody on the internet is to make sure you configure it securely. Hey Matt, I hear you have a story about very complicated certificate revocation problem. Mm -hmm. Now this one is, is a little bit complicated, like you said, so bear with me for a second. This company called Trustico is talking to another company called Digicert. Digicert bought the CA business that Symantec used to run. Trustico said, we'd like to revoke a whole bunch of certificates. Digicert says, well, you're actually a reseller. You're not the real owners of these certs. So you need to either prove to us that the certificates themselves have been compromised in some fashion or go and talk to all the owners and have them send us the message that says, yes, we agree, because you don't want a third party to just up and revoke your certs. To which Trustico responded apparently with an email containing 23,000 private keys, which is crazy because they should never have had them in the first place. It strongly suggests that Trustico is not really adhering to the standards set forward by the CA board. There'll probably be some investigations as to what they're doing, and now the questions are raised. The reason that they had them is believed is because they had a tool on their website. You can drop this information in, and you know they'll give you back what you need to, to run your website. But in the process, that private key was apparently logged somewhere. The other problem with that website is that it was all being done in JavaScript but there were also six, at least six other scripts running on the page from third-party providers. Mm. So whatever sensitive operation is going on, six other parties are privy to that calculation. When the news broke that this had happened and Trustico and, and Digicert are going back and forth arguing who's really to blame for this, naturally it tr attracted some people's attention and within 24 hours, someone would, had posted to Twitter that there was a command injection vulnerability on Trustico's website and within an hour or two of that, Trustico's website got shut down. But the part that I think still has to be worked out that's not exactly clear is what is the role of a reseller in this entire chain? Managing keys and then revoking keys is somewhat tricky. For me, there were a lot of questions like, well, who do you let revoke a key? Is it Can a reseller do it for the, for the other person? And there's some issues there. You need to think through really who you allow to revoke keys. Yeah, my question is kind of what started it all? Why did they decide that they needed to revoke all of these certificates? Were they involved in something malicious or compromised? So according to Trustico, the upcoming changes in Chrome that were going to no longer trust semantic certificates, they claimed that this was some sort of move to get their customers off of old semantic certs uh, onto some other provider. So that's how they were going to make that transition so that their sites no longer would be broken in Chrome when the update came out. But saving the keys was the wrong step, in my opinion. I think a core fundamental of security is like trusting other people sometimes. Sometimes? <laughs> well, most of the time, right? But okay. you end up placing your trust in somebody else to do things the right way mm -hmm. because maybe they know how to do it better. But it seems like in this case, trust was broken. Uh, trust is very serious business. You got to think through every step of the process and it's easy 
to, to not think through something and then have an exposure, a weakness, and then the keys aren't private anymore. What's the phrase, trust but verify? Yes. There was no easy way to really verify that because they didn't notify customers, by the way, when you run this tool on our website, we're going to keep a copy of what you put into it. If they were a little more transparent about it, this would have been found sooner. Someone would have read some terms of service and said, that can't be right. I think education of what the process is could go a long way and prevent this sort of information. If you're an admin, uh, definitely understand what it is to create a certificate for your site. Understand that you don't need to provide a lot of information to your CA in order for them to sign your certificate. When you're creating uh, an SL certificate, try to keep those private keys private. So they're called private keys because only you, the owner of the certificate, uh, should know them. There's blame on multiple sides here, but for most people, for, for admins at least, these are the steps they could do to protect themselves. Dan, I hear today on ThreadTrack you have a story about Ethereum. Yes. I was reading this article uh, at BitcoinMagazine.com, and it's about some research that people did at Boston University where they kind of theorized a possible attack vector against Ethereum. And specifically, they were looking for vulnerabilities in GF, which is like, I guess, a client that you use for mining Ethereum cryptocurrency. There's an Eclipse vulnerability in the older version of this client, which is what they discovered. So the reason it's called Eclipsing vulnerability is if you can control who you connect to in the peer-to-peer -peer network, you can eclipse the victim, the one target, from the rest of the peer-to-peer -peer network. The researchers discovered that it's actually possible to saturate the connections to a, a target victim uh, to all come from an adversary. It's kind of like a man in the middle against a peer-to-peer -peer network. It's like you're somehow able to direct all of the connections. Instead of going all over the place, mm -hmm. it's going to go to just the computers associated with the background. So it's, it's like bottlenecking a peer-to-peer -peer network so that people can only talk to or through ones that you control? Yes, Okay. exactly. So basically, let's say when you get booted up, when you boot up for the first time, you don't have any connections open. So if I knew your IP address, I could connect to you and saturate all of the maximum connections that the client would establish, which is like 13. So basically, your whole connection to the rest of this peer-to-peer -peer blockchain technology in Ethereum is through computers I control. Okay. And what they were able to discover is that you, know, you can create as many uh, unique like IDs. So basically, you can create like an unlimited number of nodes. From the same From the same machine. computer. I think from I the read same that IP part. address, yeah. yes. So you don't need, like in, in Bitcoin, it's not like that. You need to come in from like hundreds of IP addresses. Right. But here you're able to just maybe have one or two and saturate all these 13 connections. It was interesting to me to, to see that you could have all of the connections from some client taken really by the same actor. And so they don't really talk to the network, they always talk to you. And then you can kind of hide um, you know, what you tell them and what you tell everybody else. The thing that you could do with an eclipsing attack, you know, now that you control basically the view that this person has, is you can trick them. You can trick the person and say, hey, you think that, that you're spending five coins, what you're gonna actually do is, on the real blockchain, spend seven, um, mm. but you think you spent five. Okay. Know, it's like kinda double spend, it's a double spending problem. Mm -hmm. And the other part of it is, they worked with the developers of Ethereum, 
to explain this problem to them. And I think one of the biggest success stories is the first sentence of the story, which is working with the Ethereum developers through their bug bounty program was very smooth. Once the researchers found something that they thought was a problem, they had somebody to work with. They had somebody to report their findings to. And then they were able to fix it and release an update. Very interesting research work on how you could make some abuses of these emerging platforms that we think of as being very trustworthy. You, know, you can't change the past, but there are tricks that people could uh, pull off to abuse some of the features. If you're involved with Ethereum at all, this is the time to patch. You should be patching GF immediately because a lot of these, these fixes have been put in place. Maybe go out and read the paper if you're technically inclined and you really want to understand exactly what this means. And if you're someone who has that privileged place of designing new blockchain implementations, this is definitely a place to study and understand what these techniques are so you can defend against them. All right, guys, let's take a look at this week's internet weather. Uh, the top 10 most probe ports for this week, no surprise, 23 TCP is at the top. That's Telnet. It's been there for a long, long time. In second place is 22TCP, that's SSH. After that is 1433, which I believe is MS SQL Server. Uh, 8545 is Ethereum, that's that GF that you mentioned before. It's one of those uh, daemons that's getting scanned. Uh, in fifth place, we have 445TCP, which is SMB, most likely still related to the WannaCry worm and offshoots of that. Uh, in sixth place is port 11211 UDP, which is Memcached, which is a big favorite of yours, I think. A lot of news about Memcached servers being used for denial of service attacks. Yep. So in seventh place is 3389, which is remote desktop protocol. Port 80 TCP is in eighth place. That's HTTP. 1911 TCP is, uh, I want to SSDP. say, SSDP. Yeah. And then in... 10th place is 443 TCP, which is HTTPS, generally. This new port popped right up, I think it went up 27 spots, port 11211 UDP, and we're probably going to see it you know, go up even further in the top 10 list. Compare and contrast that to the most sources probing, this is a measure of the number of sources that are sending traffic as opposed to the volume of the overall traffic. So this can often indicate that there are large botnets involved. Uh, as opposed to just smaller numbers of folks generating large amounts of traffic. Lots of actors doing this. Lots of actors, yes. So again, port 23 TCP is still king. Uh, port 445 TCP is in second place in this case. Uh, port 5431 TCP is in third. And that one is kind of interesting. I believe that is another alternate port for UPnP. Mm. And I believe there was, there was an older bug for the WRT54GL, which is an old Linksys router, but there may be other UPnP vulnerabilities as well that we just haven't you know, been made aware of yet. Port 80ICMP echo request is in fourth place, and I should probably mention uh, in sixth place is 00 code ICMP echo reply, so that's ping traffic. Um, in the middle of those two, in fifth place is 21TCP, that's uh, FTP file transfer protocol. Seventh place is 81TCP, which is an alternate web port. I believe it may have something to do with a specific IoT device, but the name and model are escaping me right now. 6881, I believe, is BitTorrent. It's one of the peer-to-peer, -peer, yeah. Mm -hmm. Port 22TCP is in ninth place here. That's SSH again. And then 5555 TCP is a botnet, I believe, is based on the Android ADB network port. Yes, this one I think we covered a few weeks ago on Internet Weather. And that's exactly right. There's a set of devices, Android devices out there that have their 
port 5055, which is used for debugging, the mm -hmm. debugging interface open. Mm -hmm. And it looks like it's been decreasing over time as compared to these other threats. Mm -hmm. That's that's an interesting one. I think I met, the, read the same article was about um, ADB miner is the malware in that case. Again, yes. if something's got a vulnerability, people are going to use it to mine these days. Uh, so just a graph of the last 30 days on port 23 TCP telnet, slowly trending up again. Uh, you can see it's a usual cyclical thing, and it's, peaks, it's peaking out around 150,000 scan sources per hour. So still significant. But if you look back a year or so, I believe it's down from like a peak of like 400,000 yes. or something a like that. Yes, a year ago, we, when we were seeing the Mariah attacks in, in particular, this number was way, way higher. Taking a look at port 8545 TCP, which is Ethereum, uh, GF in particular is part of this. There was a, a bug in GF a while ago that was exposing RPC to the internet that would allow people to mess directly with your Ethereum wallets, which was a problem. Uh, but I'm sure that there's still, you know, concerted interest in that. Taking a look in particular at the spike around the 1st of March, uh, turns out if you compare that to the number of scan flows, it's a spike in both the volume and the number of scanners. So you can see here that this is the scan sources per hour, and that peaks up around 31.32. That's the one that's responsible for putting it up on the charts here. So someone had a real short-lived brief interest in this, this software. Scan sources on 445 TCP, which is SMB. Again, we attribute this generally to the WannaCry Eternal Blue suite of malware. And you can see it slowly trending upwards uh, as it has been since WannaCry broke and probably will continue to go until people start patching this stuff. The only thing that's different about this one is how pronounced the cyclical pattern is there. It's a good point. Uh, which probably means there's machines being turned on and off that belong to you know, a person actually Perhaps today. business machines, yes. yeah, yeah, very possible. Port 5431 uh, is that UPnP one we mentioned, and you can see that it, it's got some significant concentrated spikes in very short time periods. And you take a look again at the, the scan sources, also concentrated spikes. So I would consider this maybe one botnet that periodically decides to scan on that port. Uh, you can see there's almost no background scanning on it whatsoever. So someone really wants this port <laughs> for a particular reason may suggest they know something that the general populace doesn't. Maybe they have a, a zero day that they're trying to exploit. And to talk about port 5555 is that Android ADB uh, vulnerability, which is not really a vulnerability so much as a misconfiguration, let's call it that. But you can see that we had a spike in the last 24 hours on that one and a pretty good amount of uh, background scanning as well. So scan flows are usually coming in around 40 to 50 million per hour. Internet weather, a lot of the things have stayed the same. The one major uh, news item is port 11211 UDP, which is memcached. That was the, the memcache reflective denial of service attack we talked about before. We're seeing significant spikes there, and I think the consensus is amongst the folks on the show today that those are only going to go up from there. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.